Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, welcome, tribe. Good morning. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're back for the second Sunday in the new building. That was my fear, that we'd have a lot of sort of people that kind of gooseneck at a traffic accident on the highway and that maybe they wouldn't be back the next week. But I'm glad you're here. So if you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 18. If you're a visitor, my name is Brad and I am, by God's grace, scandalous grace, really a privilege to be one of the pastors here at this church. And I'm really, really glad that you are here today. I am so eager to begin this series of messages that we're going to be in for the next six months through 1 Corinthians, which I know you're wondering, why are we starting in Acts? Because it's not 1 Corinthians. Well, today we're going to look at the beginning of the Corinthian church and how the Apostle Paul planted 1 Corinthians or planted the church in Corinth and then write several letters to them. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, 1 through 17 today. And then for the coming months, we will be working our way through the letter of 1 Corinthians. It is a spectacular letter. It is raw and gritty and full of real life stuff. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that take the 30,000 foot beautiful doctrine of Christ and what he has done for us and then how it applies into regular messy lives like Reynolds referred to, lives like ours. The Corinthian church was a gifted but messy church. There was sexual immorality. There was selfishness. There was Lots of confusion about spiritual gifts. There was a misunderstanding of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. And they were messing it up. It sounds a lot like people like us. And in that place and in that time amongst a really rugged group of people, God desires to plant a church for his glory. And I believe that he has not changed. He's doing the same thing today. And so we're going to look at this letter. It's going to be, oh, it's going to be so good. And uh, we're going to unpack it. So if you have a Bible... Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible or you just forgot yours today, we welcome you to take those little chair Bibles that we have underneath the rack. Those are for you to just refer to on a Sunday or to take and keep if you don't have a Bible. If you're investigating Christianity or if if, uh, you're a new Christian and you don't have a Bible, we want you to take that Bible. We want you to keep it. Uh, Admittedly, it's not the highest quality. And so if you like we say every week, if you want something a little bit better, Check lost and found. Actually, last week, a couple, couple of you did leave your Bibles, and there's going to be, a, I think there's a little basket underneath the visitor desk, and there were actually a couple of pretty good ones in there, and I don't think they had names on them. So, uh, so anyway, free game. Uh, but uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today, and uh, here's, here's my plan today. I'm going to read, generally I read through uh, what we're preaching on and then pray and, and then work back to the text today. We're going to read and stop, read and stop, read and stop make points along the way, and then at the end I'm going to offer four summary points, and then we're going to conclude. And what we do is we don't end worship right after the message. If you're newer to Crosspoint, we like to respond to Jesus with our singing. Communion is available for those of us that are believers in Jesus, and this is what Christians have done historically for centuries. They have responded to Christ and His Word with worship, with singing, with prayer, with repentance. And with communion. And so it is our custom here at Crosspoint to a little bit more formally receive communion together as a church on the first Sunday of every month. 
but on every Sunday we have it available for those of us that are believers in Jesus to remember the cross and to examine our lives as we respond to God's word. As Reynolds referred to earlier, we're not just trying to get through Sunday morning. Uh, we are going to dive into the word of God. Those of you that know I have been from Cross Point, you know that I have been preparing for this particular set of messages through 1 Corinthians, and I have been digesting Acts 18. And friends, I could preach until Tuesday, but I am tempted not to do so. So let's pray and let's begin and read Acts 18. Father, we are so grateful. You are good. You're good. You are so good to us. In in your scandalous grace, you have caused us to be Christians, those of us that have repented and believed in Jesus today, in by the mercy of your Holy Spirit, I believe you are drawing people who are not yet born again into this room to hear about Jesus. And so, Lord, would we center our hearts, would we now lay aside every distraction and overcome every obstacle. Holy Spirit, would you, by your kind way, would you, would you soften hard hearts and would you open and focus distracted hearts today so that in this room, right now, as we open up your true and inerrant and inspired word, that we would see Jesus. That Christians in this room, whether they have been Christians for just days or whether they have been Christians for years, that you would stir in our hearts a, a longing for Christ. And God, for those that are in this room and that are not yet Christians, I pray today, even as we're preaching about the beginning of the church in Corinth, where you, in your sovereign will, planted a church for your glory, that God, we today would see Christ and those that are not yet Christians would be caused by your gracious goodness to repent and believe in Jesus and become new creations. Lord, now we open up your word and we ask for you to bring great illumination to us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go. Acts chapter 18. It's on page 652 of your, of your chair Bibles, if you're using that to help you flip through it. Page 652, Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Just to give you a little idea of where we are in the New Testament timeline, the Apostle Paul has been dramatically, dramatically born again and rescued by Christ. You can read about that in Acts 8 and 9. He was persecuting Christians. He was, in fact, on his way to persecute some more Christians. And in that early part of Acts, Jesus makes a cameo appearance after his resurrection and ascension to slap Paul around a little bit and tell him to stop persecuting his people and to become his apostle. And so, uh, wisely, Paul obeys Jesus in that. And he then begins to take the gospel into the Roman Empire and preach it in all sorts of cities. And now he finds himself in the city of Corinth. Corinth is a city that is in modern-day Greece. It's in sort of the isthmus. I've never really been able to pronounce that word, so I'm just going to say it once. It's a little land strip. It's I-S-T-H, isthmus. I'm messing it up already, so forgive me. But it's in the little land strip between the Greek mainland and the the island, the Peloponnesian sort of uh, uh, part of Greece. And Corinth was a port city that was very strategic for the gospel. Corinth, well, Corinth was not actually a port. It was in the middle of that land strip, but, but people would bring their cargo to one end of the peninsula, and then they would unload it and take it to the other. So it was a really a, a seafaring route where lots of things happened, lots of trade, lots of commerce. It was on the cutting edge of society at that time, and there was lots of entertainment. There was athletic games there. It was about 
about uh, 50 to 70 miles or so away from Athens. And, of course, that's where the Olympic Games started. And there was another sort of secondary Olympic Games uh, there at this particular city of Corinth. And so it was a bustling town with a lot of influence. And God and his sovereignty inspired Paul to plant a church there. And so let's read in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Well, let's stop there. I told you we're going to stop a lot. Uh, Paul went to Corinth. Corinth, as I mentioned, was a strategic place. Lots of trade, lots of commerce, lots of culture, lots of immigrants. And I just wonder here if people in this room that are from Columbus or that are here realize also of the strategic import of the city of Columbus. Columbus is a very strategic place. Many people that kind of grow up, I know what it's like to grow up in a town and kind of think, well, it's not that big of a deal, and you kind of have a little bit of a bad attitude about your city that you grow up in. But Columbus is a very strategic place. In fact, I I see in this room right now all sorts of short haircuts and men that look like they're in the army. I mean, there are people in this room. I just met a guy from the nation of Texas today. God is sending foreigners to our city. I mean, there's guys from all over the place. I'm originally from California and I met a girl here and stayed. I came here through Fort Benning in the army. There's business here. We, we, this is the headquarters of several worldwide and very strategic companies. And we've got Fort Benning, the home of the infantry on our doorstep. And it's about to be in about a year or so, the home of the armor. Do you realize how absolutely strategic The city of Columbus is for the sake of the gospel. We need good churches in Columbus. We need people that are preaching about Jesus and lifting up his name and being clear about what the gospel is and not preaching self-help because God wants to impact our nation and our city and the world really through the influence of the people that come and go through Columbus. Average person in Columbus, do you understand the strategic import of this city and how it is God's will to have churches that are clear about who Jesus is in our city. Are you on that train? Are you in that mission? Do you understand that? And if you're here for business and you're going to be gone shortly, if you're here for the military and you're going to be gone shortly, we want to serve you and pour our lives into you. In fact, Crosspoint, if you see a young guy that's got a short haircut, he's hungry and he wants lunch. And so invite him and love on these guys as they come. Many of them will be in dangerous places I don't want to overstate, though, the strategic import of bigger cities. Uh, I think we're actually the second largest city in Georgia. Uh, I mean, just yesterday, I was driving down to Americus, Georgia, with my uh, oldest son for a cross-country meet. He did awesome, by the way. Good job, Joe. But we drove through, we drove through a little town called Plains, Georgia. And there is a president who, of the United States who is from Plains, Georgia. Now, I don't want to hear your commentary on whether or not you think he was a good president or not. It was a long time ago. But the bottom line is a president, a leader of the free world, came from Plains, Georgia. So we need good churches in Atlanta, in Columbus, and in Plains, Georgia. And then we drove back through Buena Vista, which actually, in my almost native tongue of Spanish, is more correctly pronounced See, you guys have messed me up. It's pronounced correctly, just for the record, Buena Vista. We need churches in Buena Vista. We need churches in America. We need churches in Plains, Georgia. We need churches in Columbus, in New York City, in Chicago, in El Centro, California. We need churches everywhere. This, This 
pattern of God in Acts is to plant churches for the glory of God so that the gospel would be made clear. Let's keep reading in verse 2. And he found a Jew. This is Paul now. He's moving from Athens to Corinth, taking the gospel across the Roman Empire. Verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Just one little point there. Isn't this beautiful how the sovereignty of God works even in opposition Claudius was the Roman emperor and he was generally sort of friendly to the Jews. And in his mind, the Christians who were the kind of the new Jews accepting Jesus as Messiah, he didn't really make a distinction. He, for some reason at this particular time, we're not sure why, became a little bit upset with the Jews. Maybe he uh, caved into pressure of some of his officials and he uh, scattered the Jews, some of which were early Christians, from he made them leave Rome. And because of what he did to them, he really paved the way for the spreading of the gospel in many respects in the Roman Empire. And so my point is this, friends, is that, is that politicians and kings and governors and presidents can do what they want to do, but even what seems to be a setback, God can use it for the advance of his gospel. Friends, this is good news, especially for us today, as we lament at the political decisions of our political leaders. And I, you, I say this, Jesus is not a Democrat or a Republican. Jesus is king. That's what he is. And he uses Republicans. He uses Democrats. He uses despots. He uses, he uses uh, cruel rulers. He uses He uses these men for his sovereign purpose. And in this particular sense, he handled Claudius, like Proverbs 21, 1 says, like a a stream in his hand to work his plan. That is encouraging, friends, especially as you see jacked up politicians doing things for poor motivations. We can take comfort in the fact that God can even use the decree of a pagan ruler to work out his sovereign plan to advance the gospel. I love that. I love that. Maybe you don't as much because you didn't seem so excited. (laughs) Keep reading in verse 2. And he went to see them. Now Paul is going to meet Aquila and Priscilla, these two Italian expatriates who have now landed in Corinth because of Claudius' decree that the Jews had to leave Rome. Verse 2, the end there. Paul went to see them, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he was a tent maker, he stayed with them. And worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so what we see here is Paul, who was a tent maker by trade, is working his regular job, 9 to 5, doing his thing. Evenings and weekends, he's preaching the gospel, and he meets up with two other regular people. Aquila and Priscilla and he finds out that they're tent makers they become we don't really know whether or not Priscilla and Aquila were Christians yet they probably were maybe we're not sure but at least we can say that their that their faith was strengthened by Paul's friendship and now they begin to form a little a little small group of 3 in Corinth and from this little friendship God begins to plant this church that becomes for, the church in Corinth, which we get two letters in the Bible. Friends, I just want to 
pause for just a second and, and just say, Priscilla and Aquila are two tent makers, a husband and wife running a small business, and they're just regular people. And they're in the book. I mean, God uses regular people. I mean, someday, I say this often every time we come across somebody like this in the scriptures, someday, I mean, we've got about 70 or 80 years here, if the Lord is gracious to us, on this earth, and someday we're going to stand before Jesus, and we're going to be in heaven, and there's going to be all the saints that we read about in there, and many of you, because, because, because we're just star-studded Americans, you're going to be in the Moses line, or the Abraham line, or the Peter and Paul line, you go, dude, you're awesome. I'm going to go to Priscilla and Aquila, and I'm going to say, like, what? seriously, bro? And he's going to be like, I know, bro, I was just making tents. And Paul rolled up on me. And all of a sudden, I become part of the core group that plants the church in Corinth. Can you believe it? Paul, you, Paul just rolled up and here we are. God uses regular people. Just jacked up, scared, anxious, confused tent makers. This is encouraging friends this is so encouraging we have a like a cult of personality culture in america where it seems like only the sharp and the trained and the really slick can actually make an impact that is false and that is a lie of satan if you've got a pulse and you've got ears to hear god can use you for his glory for the advance of the gospel in this city and in your sphere of influence don't believe anything less than that because it's a lie that is the truth god uses messed up confused people that are still dealing with sin people like us that's encouraging to me let's keep reading verse five when silas and timothy arrived from macedonia paul's two ministry helpers and associates paul was occupied listen to this paul was occupied with the word he was talking about jesus he was preaching about what jesus did on the cross he was not concerned with improving the daily lives of the corinthians and giving them tips on how to live more influential or easy lives in their context he was preaching jesus from the old testament exalting christ as the promised savior with the message of the cross encouraging them to repent and turn from either their self-righteousness if they were jews in the law or from their sin and to trust in christ he was preaching jesus paul was occupied with the word testifying to the jews that christ was jesus and of course, as it always does, it stirs up controversy and strife. Verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, I love this, Paul wasn't a wimpy little guy. I mean, he was not Ned Flanders by any stretch of the imagination. He, Paul, Paul was rough, man. He, he, he was rough. This is what Paul does. Can you imagine this? I mean, listen, think about a street preacher. Think about... Just think about me ever saying to this to you if you weren't getting the gospel. Verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now I will go on to the Gentiles. <laughs> 
That's Paul's way of saying, put that in your religious pipe and smoke it. I'm gone. If you don't receive Jesus, I'm out. Friends, that, is, that takes courage. And here, here's the point that I, I want us to, to just settle our hearts on is that, is that the name of Jesus is a dividing line. Paul was not preaching sort of ambiguous thoughts about God, about how God can improve your life. He was preaching about Jesus, who is God, who makes God personal, who is God in the flesh. He's not just this nebulous concept of a deity. Jesus becomes the perfect God-man, and Jesus demands that people repent and believe and obey. That is offensive to our world and to our culture. And Paul was preaching about Jesus. Am I on? Alright. I feel like I'm going in and out. Alright. Paul was preaching the gospel. And he was preaching about, and this is so unpopular in our culture today because we want to hear about puppy dogs and lollipops and dandelions and all sorts of things that make us happy. Paul was preaching about the certainty of judgment. Friends, with every... (laughs) with every bit of brokenness and love and compassion that God has put in me, I want you to know that there is only two eternal possibilities for every person in this room. There is a real heaven and there is a real hell. And only those who repent and believe and trust in what Jesus did on the cross are are those that have eternal life with Jesus in heaven. If you do not do that. I don't care if you are a relatively moralistic American or if you're a member of this church or any other church. What awaits you is your blood on your own hands and the righteous and just wrath of a holy God who does not edge at all on His holiness. You must repent and believe in Jesus. You must see Him. You must treasure Him. You must place the weight of your life in Christ. Your hope must be on what Jesus did on the cross. And friends, this is the simple gospel. The gospel is this. This is what Paul was preaching to the Jews and the Gentiles. He was telling them that all people are sinful, all of us, whether we're good Americans or whether we're Middle East terrorists or whether we're convicted felons, all of us have rebelled against God whether it be in public wanton sin or whether it be in our own cherished self-righteousness, all of us have turned away from God and trusted in ourselves and cherished our own sin. And the message of the Gospel is that God in His righteousness and holiness could and does for those that don't believe in Jesus, but could punish all mankind and, and judge them forever and send them away from His presence. But in His kindness, He sends Jesus the God-man in the flesh to live the life that you and I should have lived but did not live so that He would store up righteousness, so that He would become a perfect sacrifice for us and then He would willingly lay down His life on the cross and He would satisfy the wrath of God. The Roman Empire, the Jews did not kill Jesus. God killed Jesus and He killed Jesus to pour out His wrath on Jesus as a substitute for the sin of all those that would repent and believe in Him. 
And so Jesus becomes the wrath-bearing substitute of God on the cross for all of those that repent and believe. Friends, that is the gospel. And then he rises again three days later in victory over death and over our sin to show that God was satisfied with his sacrifice and to exalt him over his enemies. And now he reigns in heaven, commanding all people everywhere, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, every white person, every black person, every brown person, every yellow person, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every person he commands to repent and treasure and trust in what he did on the cross in his death and burial and resurrection alone for your salvation. I don't care if you're a good little church kid that grows up in the South or if you've never heard the gospel or if you are far away from God. The good news of the gospel, friends, is that it's not based on what you have done because you cannot save yourself. In fact, the Bible says that sin has not just made you less of a person. It has killed you. Romans or Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses. Colossians 2 says we are dead in our sin. You're not diminished. You're dead. And the power of the gospel is, is that it comes and it brings life to a dead heart. And it causes you to see Jesus so that you would trust in Him and not in yourself. Friends, that is the gospel. And if you have not done that, you need to do that today. You don't need to raise your hand or repeat a prayer after me, although at times those things can be helpful. Right now, repent and believe. Turn from trust in yourself or turn from your cherished sin that you know is contrary to God and treasure and receive what Jesus did on the cross. That's called believing, friends. Placing the weight of your life in what Jesus did in His death and His burial and His resurrection. That's the gospel. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Do it right now, friend. I don't care if you're a member of this church and by the Holy Spirit, He's awakening it to you or whether you just stumbled in here today and you've never heard it. That's the gospel. Repent and believe. And that's what Paul was preaching to these people and it caused controversy. And it causes controversy still today. Let's keep reading verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Verse 8, Crispus The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so Paul is clearly preaching Jesus. He goes first. This was his pattern in the book of Acts in the New Testament was to go first to the Jews and to clearly try and show them from the Old Testament that Jesus was the promised Messiah that the prophets spoke about. And most of them rejected. Certainly some believed. Most of them rejected. And then after the majority of the Jews would reject him, then he would go to the Gentiles and he would sort of set up a little kind of public kind of preaching event at the synagogue there. And in this particular situation, he finds a house right next door to the synagogue. This guy named Titius Justice And Crispus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, who was a Jew, believed in Jesus, and he becomes a Christian. And so this is controversial because the majority of the Jews in Corinth had rejected Paul's message about Jesus, and now one of the more strategic Jewish people accepts the message of Jesus, and now a little church is being planted right next door to the synagogue, and the leader of the synagogue becomes a Christian. Here's one point I want to bring out on this is that I don't, we don't know much about Crispus, but we know that he was the leader 
of this little local synagogue, and he was certainly the leader of his house. His entire household got saved. The point I want to make in this is that men, as dads and husbands, you are very strategic in God's plan to evangelize the world. I believe one of the great attacks of the enemy in our culture is to dumb down and minimize and sort of neuter male masculinity, male spirituality. And as a result, ladies, uh, wives, mothers, understandably so, have had to assume sort of spiritual leadership in churches and in homes. And if you are one of those type of ladies, let me encourage you because God can and does move powerfully through less than ideal circumstances where a husband is checked out or a dad is not leading. And ladies, you keep doing what you have to do to lead your family in the absence of your husband checking in and being the man that he's called to be. And God can do great things through you, sister, and he will do great things for you. I'm not trying to discourage you at all. I am trying to encourage you. But men... One of the great weaknesses in American church culture is passive men who abdicate the spiritual leadership of their household to their wives. Don't do that, brothers. Be the guy that sticks it in the ground who says that for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Be the guy who sets the tempo for your family spiritually. Be that guy. You have what it takes. And if you have made a mess of it, there is grace in the Lord. Get around some guys that you sense are sticking it in the ground and ask them for their help. We have some cats in this church who've been through it, man, who have failed and who God has given grace to, and they're doing it. And they would love nothing more, man. This isn't some locker room scenario where everybody's going to look down in their insecurity over or at, down the end of their noses at you. We're here to help you men to stick it in the ground like Christmas did and be men that lead their household. That doesn't mean you've got to be eloquent. That doesn't mean you've got to pray like the preacher or you've got to be able to read Scripture eloquently. That just means that you've got to stand up and say, this is my house and we're going to live for Jesus. I tell tell you what, women love that, men, when you do that. Women love that. They are dying for that. Seal it. No. I'm going to let that one sit for a little while and take a drink on that one. Fathers, you're critical. And let me encourage you again, ladies. If you are, if you are, if you are compensating for a husband who's not quite there yet. Oh, we, we love you, sister, and we understand. And we're so thankful that you are compensating. But we, we want to pray and we want to be a sort of hospital for those, type of, uh, for those type of families where the men can, in grace, and be encouraged to be the leaders of their household. And so we see here in verses 7 and 8 that the church begins to form. The church forms through the Word of God. The church doesn't form it through a building or through music, 
or through a style the church forms through the preaching of the Word of God. This is so important. And I really want us to really clue in on this and, and appreciate this, especially as we're in a new setting that is a whole lot more functional. And I will admit that it will be more strategic and it will be easier. And this is a better flat platform for the preaching of the Gospel than where we were. But friends, you've got to know this, is that the advance of the Gospel, the building of the church, depends on the preaching of the Word. And you say, well, there are large churches maybe in our country and in the world where maybe the Word of God is not rightly preached. Well, I agree. But just because a whole bunch of people are gathering together in a room with a sign outside that says church doesn't necessarily mean that it's a true biblical church. And so the, God forms His Word through the church and He gives life to His Word through His church through the Word, and this is what happens then is people respond with water baptism. If you've never been water baptized and you're a Christian, you need to obey the Lord and water baptize. You need to be water baptized soon. Pretty soon here, sometime before the end of this year, we're going to roll out our portable baptismal pool. We're going to fill that puppy up with water, and we're going to have a baptismal service. If you have not been baptized and you're just kind of a lazy cultural Christian who thinks it's not that important, or in sort of your... Uh, your, your love for your own reputation, it would embarrass you to be baptized because you were a Christian long ago and now it just seems sort of awkward. You're exactly the type of person that needs to stand up and publicly say, I am Jesus's and he is mine. That's what water baptism is for. We've created this altar call culture where people think they become Christians because they raise their hand when everybody has their heads bowed as if that's some sort of bold public witness. That's not. And if you did that, I'm not downing that. Again, that can be helpful. But God's plan in the New Testament for a public profession of your faith is water baptism. And it communicates the gospel clearly that you've been washed, that you've been brought up out of the waters of death in new life in Jesus. And so the church is formed through the preaching of the word and the people respond in baptism. Let's keep reading verse 9. And then the Lord said to Paul, oh, this is so good. Verses 9, 10, and 11 are... Stout. Listen to this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Remember, he just, he just got reviled and heckled by some Jews. And now he's stirring up controversy in the house next door to the church. Paul's head is probably spinning a little bit, a little nervous. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Listen to this. For I have many in this city who are my people. And in verse 11 it says, And he stayed a year and six months, 18 months, teaching the word of God among them, which was an unusually long stay for Paul in a city as he was carrying the gospel. Let me read verse 10 again. The Lord comes and says, For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Friends, this is a much debated and controversial verse in the New Testament. What does it mean when God says to Paul, I have many people in this city? What does that mean? Does it mean that there were already a whole bunch of Christians there in Corinth waiting for somebody with a little bit of leadership to come and plant a church so they could start doing church and build a children's ministry and have a youth group? Maybe, but probably, in fact, that's a very unlikely scenario because only just a few Christians 
were probably in the city already. Maybe Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe Apollos, who we're going to read about in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Maybe. But the gospel hadn't really reached Corinth yet. And so what does God mean when he, mean when he comes to Paul and he says, Take courage, my man, because I have many people in this city. Friends, this means that God is sovereign over the hearts and the salvation of people. And He has an end. It means that He knows, as Paul writes to Timothy later on, He knows those who are His. But friends, for all of you Reformed theologians out there who love the sovereignty of God, you also got to get this, is that God never accomplishes His sovereign end apart from the means of the preaching of the Gospel. And so he doesn't say, well, I'm sovereign God. I predestined. I, 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 everything's set. He says to Paul, I have people in this city who are not yet Christians, who will become Christians. And the way I'm going to make them Christians is through the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of a church. That is a powerful verse. God's sovereign will should empower and embolden our witness, not diminishment. There are people in this city who are not yet Christians, who God called before time to be Christians, and they will only respond to the gospel if faithful people like us preach the gospel to them. That is spectacularly good news. It means several things. It means, number one, that God has guaranteed the advance of His church, number one. Number two, it means that salvation doesn't depend on the response of a person or their mustering up enough faith. It is God's sovereign work that saves people. Friends, this is good news. It's bad news to self-centered people who want to make much of themselves. But it is good news to people who revel and take joy in the sovereignty of God who has guaranteed the advance of His church and the salvation of His people through the means of preaching the gospel. Oh, friends, that is good news. That is good, good, good news. Sila. Let's wait on that one for a little bit. Let's keep going now in verse 12 through 17. I'll read this last portion, a couple points, and then we're going to come up with four summary points. Verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. The preaching of the gospel stirs it up, man. Paul's getting dragged off to be judged by these folks. Verse 13, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So what's going on here is these Jews are getting their religious feathers ruffled. And Paul is preaching Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And as Romans says, he, he satisfied the righteous requirements of the law so that all who would trust in Jesus are no longer lawbreakers, but law fulfillers, not because of what they have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so now their righteousness is hit, the righteousness of Jesus is given to us, and we fulfill the law in Jesus through our repentance and belief in what He did. That's the gospel. And the Jews are obviously, understandably upset at this because it's turning their religious system upside down. And so they're dragging Him before this court. They're taking Him before this Roman leader. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. 
I refuse to be a judge on these things. And so this Roman sort of provincial leader, in his mind, Jews and Christians are called kind of one and the same sort of a family argument. It would kind of be like us going downtown to the courthouse in Columbus and going to a local judge and saying, you know, uh, a couple of us in this church don't believe in the Trinity, but we believe in the Trinity, so can you decide on this judge? And the judge is like, uh, this is not even an issue for me. Go, go amongst yourselves and figure this thing out. We're going to talk a little bit in a few months when we get to 1 Corinthians 6 about how Christians should not, should not sue one another and how we have imbibed of the litigious culture that we live in. But that's for another day. And so in verse 16, he drove them from the tribunal. In verse 17, and they all seized, seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Now we're going to read in the first chapter of Corinthians next week about this guy named Sosthenes who evidently becomes a Christian and then becomes one of the leaders of the Corinthian church. But here's the point is that leaders got to be able to take a punch, man. I mean, Titius Justus, Crispus, causing controversy. They probably got beat up a little bit. Paul's dragged before this tribunal. Sosthenes, a Jew who converted to Christianity. Now, just because, I mean, it's kind of like, thanks, Paul. You're the one that was on trial, and I'm the one that got dragged out and got beat. And then later on, he becomes a leader of the Corinthian church. Leaders need to be able to take a punch. Spiritually, maybe even physically. If you're the dad, if you're the leader of your household, you've got to stand up, man. You've you got to be able to take a blow for your wife and your kids. By God's grace, I pray that myself and Reynolds and Donnie Mack and Will and Paul and the other leaders of this church are guys that can take a punch, who don't cower in the face of opposition, who don't complain about feisty emails or who, who get defensive when people are upset about things. If you want to be a leader, if you want to plant a church, if you're a young guy in here and you feel called into ministry, you need, to be a, you need to be a dude, man. You need to be able to take a punch. You need to be able to stand up. and you, you need, Don't need to be a little wimpy little guy that complains all the time. People are jacked up. The church is messy. There's going to be opposition. There's sin prevalent in our culture, in our society, in our church. And you're going to deal with your own sin. It's going to be rough. Advancing the gospel in a religious place that down deep inside is opposed to Jesus is hard work. It's war. And we need men who can stand up and take a punch and get dragged outside every now and again and get beat. Hopefully not literally, but maybe. They beat them in front of the tribunal. And then the last sentence, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Four quick concluding thoughts, and then we'll respond in worship. Number one, and by the way, if you're not a note taker or I speak too fast for you, our notes are always up on our website a day or two after Sunday. And so if you just want to relax and not write these down or if you do want to write these down, whatever, but we always have the notes on a PDF file or up on our website on our resources page. Point number one, the church. These are, this is nothing, nothing. Hi, friends. This is simple stuff. The church is God's missions plan. The way that God desired to bring the gospel to Greece and to Rome, to the whole Roman Empire, to 
to the United States, to Columbus, Georgia, fill in your geographical region, is by planting a church. God's mission plan is the church. But, ironically enough, even though we live in the land of churches, I think, ironically enough, there is actually, follow me here, there is actually a very low view of church in our culture. Churches are places that you just, you're just there for a while, and as long as the preacher or the monkey, he's like a, we make pastors and churches like little carnival monkeys that just have those symbols. You know, we just throw quarters at them. Clap it like I want it clapped, preacher. And as long as, and the moment they offend you, the moment something happens not your way, the moment the, you know, the, something doesn't go your way, we go to another church. And then we, man, we go, we go, we go on vacation, we do this, we prioritize everything else. But oh yeah, I'm a part of that. Like, like that's going to gain you some entrance into God's favor. We have a low view of church in the Bible Belt, don't we? It's just consumerism abounds. But God's plan is for the church, for a group of people in the face of opposition and cats like Sosthenes who are willing to get dragged out back and beat to stand up and say that God's plan is a messy group of people who are dealing with sexual immorality and jacked up selfishness and who are suing each other and who who are all messed up in their doctrinal views. A group of people to stick together and to plan a church and to give their life to a church and die for a church. So that the gospel would be advanced in their city. Now, friends, there are good reasons to leave a church at times. But most of the reasons we leave churches in our culture are flimsy and selfish. We need people who realize that giving your heart, giving your life to the service of God's evangelism plan for the nations, which is the local church, is one of the most biblical and healthy things that an average Christian can do. And so if you're on the fringes of this church, or if you are a young person, if you're a college student, and you just float around, man, and you've got like four or five little churches, oh yeah, I go to Christ Community, yeah, I go to Crosspoint, every now and again I go to that church, and then blah, blah, blah. Pick one and give your life to it and work the nursery. Don't come to the church and to the pastor and say, when are you going to start a college group? You know what our college group is? The nursery, you little punk. Work it. (laughs) Selfish little, selfish, you know, you spend all your money on Starbucks and teal and smoothies. Give to the local church. Serve the local church. Bring your Bible. Stop hitting on chicks and serve the church. And I can call you a punk because I was one once. I'm a reformed punk. Young person, the church is God's plan. Give your life to it. Give your heart to it. Stick it in the ground and serve the church. Point number two. God has placed us here for a mission. Cross point. God has placed us here for a mission. God has a strategic purpose for every church in the city. Some of them are missing it. That, that's God's plan. And maybe, maybe we might miss it someday, but I pray that by God's grace we would be a place that doesn't just revel, that the blessings of God doesn't dead end on us, that we don't just be a people that are satisfied with a good location and stained cement and little can lights and a screen and a wood stage and an awesome, an awesome pulpit. I pray that we be people that realize that God has blessed us so that we might be a blessing to our city and the nations. 
through this church, man. A young couple came here just a couple months ago. They are missionaries to the nation of Turkey. And this church gave them $6,000, fueled their advance of the gospel so that they could get back to Turkey. And you know where they're going? They're going to a city in Turkey which does not have any Christians except for these two young Americans and the other couple that they're going with so that they can bring the gospel, so that they can be like Aquila and Priscilla and Paul and plant a church in Turkey. And this church is part of that. We're on a mission here, man. Not so that we can grab some coffee and chew on a donut and talk in a foyer. All those, those are good things to do if you did it today. But we're here for a mission. We're here for a mission. We're here to make much of Jesus. We're here to clarify for a religious culture the true gospel that everyone must repent and believe. Not the gospel of justification by church attendance or good works, but the gospel of Christ and what He did on the cross. We have a mission to love the military, to bless those guys, man. We have a mission here, church, to be clear about who Jesus is so that he would draw people and so that eternal reality, so that eternities would be secure because of what happens in this place. We have a mission. Are you part of that mission? Are you in it? Are you clicked in? Is your heart on the table? Can other people that you do life with, can they see it beat for the mission and not for your own help? We have a mission. Three, God's sovereignty. I love this. Should embolden us to witness. Just like he told Paul, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. He tells us, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. I believe more than I believe in anything, in the sovereignty of God. But I also believe that there are people in our city who will or will not respond to Jesus depending on whether or not we are a church that is faithful to our mission. And so let's not hide. Let's not cower. Let's invite friends to church. Let's be clear about who Jesus is. Let's model Christ in our homes. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's lift up high the name of Jesus. Let's be bold and courageous about the fact that there's salvation in no other name but Jesus. And let's, let's shout that as a church and in our spheres of influence because God's sovereignty and His gracious goodwill has guaranteed to us that the gospel will advance. The gospel will advance. And Jesus will be exalted. Point number one is that God's, the church is God's mission plan. Point number two, God has, a place, God has placed us here for a mission. Three, God's sovereignty should embolden us to witness. And four, I end with this, everyone ultimately, everyone ultimately, in some way responds to Jesus. Notice there at the end of our passage in Acts 18. Some people believed Some people responded to Jesus. Some people bitterly opposed the message. And some people like Gallio in that last sentence, Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Some people just blow off the message of the gospel. Some people believe and respond in salvation to Jesus. Some people bitterly oppose it. And some people just blow it off. But ultimately, all of us respond to Jesus. Not responding is responding. What has been your response up to this point? Do you truly 
believe in Jesus? Have you, as we talked about earlier, have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus? Have you done that today? I don't care if you're a member of this church and we let you become a member without really knowing that you're a Christian. I don't care if you're visiting from some other church. I don't care if, I don't care if you just stumbled in and you have no idea about what the message of Christianity is today. You've heard it today. Have you believed? Have you turned from self-righteousness and sin and have you trusted in Jesus? Have you done that? I'm not talking about believed in the Christian morality or the ethic of the West or this ambiguous view of God. Have you believed in what Jesus did on the cross in his death, his sacrifice, his substitute, his wrath-bearing, wrath-satisfying work on the cross and then his victory over death and sin and his resurrection? Have you trusted in that alone for your salvation? That's what it means to be a Christian. Have you done that today? If you haven't, right now, repent and believe. Turn from trust in yourself. Turn from a false view of God that makes you think he grades on a curve, that makes you think that just being better than the next guy will get you in. Turn from the secret sin that keeps you from God and trust in Jesus. I end with this quote from my favorite preacher of all time, a Baptist preacher back in the 1800s, a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, who preached to thousands from his pulpit there in London. And he wrote in a sermon that he preached on Romans 4, 5. That text says that it is God that justifies the ungodly. He wrote in a sermon that has been reprinted in a book, All of Grace, some of his sermons that he sort of adapted to to written form. And he writes this at the end of that message, and he's speaking these words to people who think that they're too they're just too far gone to be saved or that God can't really work in a person like me. Because the lie that Satan wants to tell some of you right now is that, oh Brad, I can kind of run I can make it look like a Christian publicly, but deep down inside I don't know if I'm really of any worth or if that God could use a person like me or if he could save me. Am I the type of person come on, am I that type of person? Friends, the good news of Romans four five that sermon preaches that Spurgeon preaches on is that God justifies people like you and me who are ungodly. This is what Brother Spurgeon says at the end of this sermon. We'll have it on the screen. I love this. Come in your disorder. I mean, come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come, you that are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why why should He not? Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text, and I, I cannot put it more strongly. The Lord Himself takes to Himself this gracious title, Him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is not that a wonderful word for you? Do not delay until you have considered this matter well. Friends, come to Jesus right now in 
saving faith. Come and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. He saves wretched sinners like me. He saves ungodly people like us. That's what He does. And then He knits them together in a church body. And He uses them for His glory. For the advance of the gospel in wicked cities like Corinth and Columbus. And Lord, as we now turn to responding to You in grace and in faith. I pray, God, right now that your Holy Spirit would speak. In fact, friends, before the worship team comes to lead us in some songs of response, let's just take a moment to let silence clear out distraction. Father, now would you use my feeble words with the precision that only your Holy Spirit can bring. And would you make it like an arrow into the hearts of your people and those in this room who need to see and savor Jesus and trust in him for salvation. Lord, if there be any words of mine that were not uh, from you, I pray that you'd cause them to fall to the ground. But God, the things that we have looked at in this great chapter that are right and true, that I have expanded on, God, would you, would you use them for your sovereign will to cause Christians in this room to treasure you more and become more of a fragrance for Christ and to cause unbelievers to come to faith in Christ so that they would be born again. Do this, I pray. And then, God, as we respond to you in singing and song and communion and prayer, God, would you make Jesus more clear to us Would the sinner and the Christian alike come to the throne of grace and be made more like Jesus today? In your good name I pray. Amen.